Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning, friends. How are we doing? If you uh, came for this service and you came pretty much on time, you're probably like, what is going on here? We had a, a baptism, so hooray. Yes, uh, we're not against doing another one at the end of the service, wherever the Spirit leads, okay? But uh, we had an amazing baptism, and uh, it's just an exciting day. As well as baptism, I'm very excited because today is, believe it or not, week 52 in the book of Matthew. That is a long time. For those of you who have been with us for like, um, I don't know, what's it been, like two years since the beginning? We started around then, and we've taken some breaks, but we're taking a nice, beautiful stroll through the book of Matthew. So if you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can use your phone, but there's nothing better than just a physical book right in front of you. We have some in the back. Uh, Zach Rojas can get you one if you just raise your hand. You can also keep it and steal it. We're okay with that. So we're going to be reading out of the NET, the New English Translation. And uh, I'm just going to kind of be going through it as I talk today. Sometimes we read it all as one chunk, but today I'm just going to be going through it. Uh, for a little bit. But today was unique and really fitting for not only one year in Matthew, but also Baptism Sunday, um, because today we're talking about really just like, what does it mean to deny ourselves and to take up our cross, to follow Jesus well? And uh, baptism is one of those things, because, uh, you know, back when people get baptized in the first century, it meant that you could literally be killed for doing it, right? And pledging allegiance to Jesus over Rome or the Jewish synagogue and and, uh, all that. Today, it's more just like, the water's cold, and there's a lot of people staring at me, and it's awkward. Like that's, but, but it's so exciting to be like, even just those small ways that Jesus calls us to follow him, that we commit and follow through and do those. So that was super awesome. And, uh, and one of the things that it kind of reveals about us as a church is one of our DNA statements. We have 10 DNA points uh, as a church, and basically what those are is like 10 culture framing uh, principles that we try and kind of abide by as a church, and really just frames the culture of us as a family and as a community. Number nine is this. It says, the gospel includes suffering and tension. Embrace it. We are a church who welcomes the tension and suffering that comes from denying ourselves. Today is not a very uh, like easy, happy message. It's actually really convicting, and, and at some ways, the crux of following Jesus. And uh, it's fitting that it's week 52. It's like one year of this. We've learned about Jesus in so many ways. And today we're going to learn basically that following Jesus is inseparable from suffering and hardship and rejection and potentially shame. And, uh, and that's a good thing, actually. So we're going to unpack that. Uh, Jesus, in his journey, we've been following him geographically for the last several weeks because the regions that he, are, he is in don't really mean much to us, right? But when we understand the text, the Gospel of Matthew is written to Jews who are trying to figure out, is Jesus really the one that he says he is, right? They're following the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, trying to figure out, who is this Messiah to come? Is he it? And Matthew is giving us that, yes, he is, through many different ways. But even a lot of them have to do geographically. So this is the map we've been following for a little while. And uh, Jesus is, he was at Bethsaida, which is just north of the Sea of Galilee. He's on his way up, we're going to see in verse, uh, the first verse, verse 13, that he comes to the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is essentially outside of uh, what would be like the typical Jewish kind of areas. And so he had been up to Tyre and Sidon before, which was as well like a very non-Jewish area, very Gentile or 
um, you know, basically Gentiles are just not Jews, uh, different area. And as he's kind of on his way up there and they're up in that area, this is the most north he'll be, and then he will start his journey the whole way back down through the south part, which is called the Decapolis. There's 10 cities there. And he will make his way to Jerusalem, where he will not leave. That will be his final journey. Um, it would almost as, as if you were like, you like knew that you had an event and you were walking there, and the whole time you're kind of reflecting on like the excitement of it and the journey of it, but the whole time no one else knows where you're going. It's kind of like in the movie Forrest Gump when he like <clears throat> walks forever and runs, and all these people are following him, and they don't know where he's going, and he's like, I got to the one coast, and I just turned around and started running again. Like, that's essentially what's going on, because no one really knows what Jesus is doing, right? He's playing it, they're playing it, they feel like he's playing it year by year, right? Like, he's just day by day, it's like, whatever happens, happens. But Jesus knows, and he's actually going to give them a warning of what's going to happen. And that's, that's uh, Matthew's doing that to kind of show the, the farthest distance he'll be from Jerusalem as he enters Jerusalem, what people's opinions are of him. And that's why he asks the question in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man, or, or I, Jesus, who do people say that I am? The answers, uh, as far as we can tell, for the last 16 chapters have been many different answers. Uh, they've used many different words that are of utmost importance to them. We read them and we're like, okay, I don't, titles, whatever, right? Like, back then, if you didn't call a certain person Lord, you could get slapped or killed, right? We don't necessarily live like that today. Words are a little bit more casual. And uh, in this culture, it was very important. When you said a certain word, it had a lot of meaning and people would pull a lot of value from it. And so he had been called a couple different times the Messiah, which is the Hebrew term for liberator or savior. If you were an Old Testament Jew and you were following the law, you were waiting for the Messiah to come and liberate you and, and the house of Israel, the Jewish nation, from oppression, whether it was mainly the Romans, but just anyone from oppression, so that they could practice following Yahweh, the one true God, right, um, without any sort of tension or issues. And that, so that, that is a title that, uh, was sometimes used. Uh, another one was the son of David, and that's to fulfill the, the lineage of who the king would come. They knew that the Messiah would come through the son of David. David was this great king in the Old Testament, and uh, we know that it's not literally his son, because that was hundreds of years ago, but it's his lineage, the son of the David lineage, was how they would communicate that. And so they knew it was that, but it was still not super clarified. And then, the, uh, as they're waiting for this Messiah, they start to, to wonder, you know, is he these things or is he a prophet? Because they had had several prophets who have come and given really profound words, but they weren't the Messiah. They weren't liberating them from wherever they were oppressed. So there's a lot of tension around who he is, and Jesus throws out this question, and he says, who do people say that I am? And they answer him with three or four very wrong answers. Verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So John the Baptist is not a bad answer. If we remember, John the Baptist lived kind of out in the wilderness, dressed weird, ate weird, baptized people, was like, repent, the kingdom of God is near. And then Jesus, his beginning of his ministry, repent, the kingdom of God is near, right? That's the message. So same message, baptized people, was kind of against the Roman and even the Jewish culture in some ways, right? Like he was kind of paving his own path. So they thought maybe Jesus is just a resuscitated version of John the Baptist, resurrected. John 2.0. We know that's not really true and silly. Um, they also thought maybe he's Elijah. Elijah has some scripture in the Old Testament that almost alluded to a new Elijah coming. And so some of them took that literally. Like, Elijah's going to reincarnate. Whether he's Elijah 2.0 or he's somebody else, but he's like Elijah, the brain of Elijah. In the, it was, you know, they didn't know. They're like, this is kind of a symbol. We don't know what this means. And we'll actually learn about that in, I think, next week or two weeks, the, the true Elijah coming. But the, la the last one that they mentioned is Jeremiah. 
Now, many of you have probably not read the book of Jeremiah, and if you did, you're like, this is just depressing. Like, you would not, I would not invite Jeremiah to my wedding or birthday party, or maybe even my New Year's Eve party. He'd be like, the world is ending, and, you know, he would not be excited for the new year. And his whole, his whole book, is, his prophetic message was basically about the destruction of, of the Israel nation and the people who are coming to destroy him, and he's like, you know, they're coming, and it was just a very depressing message. It didn't sell, right? Sadness never sells. And uh, they thought Jesus was maybe that because he had t- talked about destroying the temple, right, and building it up in three days, and they thought they meant the literal temple. He had talked about the end times coming, and so they're starting to think, okay, is he a prophet? Is he this? Is he that? And all of them are wrong, right? But we have to give them a little bit of credit here because you got to think about, we, we get to know the end of the story. We get to know Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Christ, and so then when we read, we have all of that bias as we read. So it's easy for us to be like, yeah, he's fulfilling all these things. It's so obvious. But to the Jewish listener, they haven't heard the whole story yet. And they also have had a very specific expectation of what it was going to look like when Jesus came. Because they had, all they had known was oppression, right? And in today's world, we even deal with that. Like, there's specific things that we really want Jesus to free us from. And we're so obsessed with the freedom of that that we try to fit Jesus into what we want from him, Right? And very little do we, are we able to see other things because we're so just focused on our own path. That's what's beautiful about Matthew is Matthew takes Jesus, and I said this at the beginning of the book, he kind of just spins Jesus around. Like he just shows you all these beautiful components about him. And some of the beautiful components are hard. They're like truth-speaking words that are harsh. They're loving moments with people who don't deserve to be loved, right? He does healings and miracles, and he says profound things, right? He has these sermons, and that's how Matthew's centered is around these five large teaching chunks from Jesus. And really what he's doing is, is he's revealing, Jesus is asking this question by revealing the common people's understanding of him, and then he's going to ask the disciples, who do you say I am? And that's what he says in verse 15. He says, who do you say that I am? Now in 16, Simon responds, Peter, Simon Peter, but he's kind of responding on behalf of the disciples. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now that is the right answer. Good job, Peter. Right? Let's check one on his good box there. He's got a lot on the negative, so that's good. <clears throat> if you're wondering, uh, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Okay? It does, it's not like Jesus, Mr. Jesus Christ, right? Uh, Christ is the Greek term for the Hebrew Messiah. So it's the same thing, basically, just the Greek term, the Christ. So not, not uh, Jesus Christ, but it's basically Jesus the Messiah is how we communicate that. And what that is, the anointed, the savior, the Messiah, the one to come. But what, what I said was interesting is the Jewish people, that term was almost always nationalistic. It was always based on the Jewish people and how they'd received freedom from politics or social rule or all these type of things, right? It was never like this heart thing. It was never this internal reality. It was Jesus is going to set all this free. He's going to beat all these bad guys away so that we can keep doing the rituals, the laws, the sacrifices that we're doing without any sort of oppression, which is just funny because the whole Old Testament is them trying to do that and doing terrible at it on their own and then becoming oppressed. And then it's like, so it's this whole journey. But they were so focused on Jesus coming as like this nationalistic, um, almost like insurrectionist, right? Like a rebel. And we know that this passage is going to teach us that Jesus is like, you have far misunderstood. Yes, yes, I am the son of God. Yes, I am the Christ. I am the one to come. But my, my way about which I will go about things is in, almost entirely opposite of what you think. And that is that the Messiah has a mission of suffering and defeat. Now, we don't think that's awesome, um, necessarily. If, if you were, like, going to follow a great leader, you don't follow a leader because they are going to suffer and lose, right? Like, nobody's like, we're going to go out to this football game. 
and we're going to get hurt, and we're going to lose. It's going to be great. And everybody's like, yeah, I love this guy, right? You're like, no, get us a new captain. This guy's depressing, right? You wouldn't follow him, especially if you, like, gave up your whole life for this guy, right? I mean, these disciples had given up everything to follow him, and now he's saying, yeah, like, I'm going to die. And they're like, no, you're not. And that's why Peter, literally the next verse, um, or the next few verses, Jesus affirms this, but Peter immediately, like, shows that he does not really get it. And so in verse 17, Jesus answers him, and we can assume it's the, all the disciples, you are blessed, basically, good answer, you're right. Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven did. And I tell you, you are Peter. Peter means rock, which is you are on this rock. It's a pun, basically, but it's, it's in the Bible. It's funny. It's great. On this rock, I will build my church. On this Peter is what it should say. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. Then he instructed the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Peter gets, I'm sure, excited. I mean, this is like, you got the right answer, Peter. You're also going to be like the spiritual juggernaut of the first century community, which he was. I mean, we're here because of Peter. He also entered a lot of suffering, which is what he will learn through this process of following Jesus till, till the end, until he's crucified. But Peter probably has a lot of ideas in his mind of what that means, right? If we remember, um, there's stories in the Bible that talk about them fighting over who gets to sit on the right hand and left hand of Jesus, right? Because they're thinking in terms of okay, if Jesus is going to truly fulfill what he says and what we know, that means we're going to be like vice president, right? Or we're going to be like second in command. We're going to have a, make a bunch of money. We're going to have this great influence. And Jesus says to him, he's like, no, no, whoever is more a slave, like that is actually, you should serve more in the higher positions you are. You'll be more of a slave to people. And they're like, well, that's not how that works, right? And you can tell this because Peter, I'm sure, gets a little bit of excitement around this calling that he gets. And so verse 21, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to, back to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, experts of the law, and be killed. And he does tell them, and on the third day be raised, but they focus on the killing part. So Peter takes him aside. Peter's like, I'm the rock. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help Jesus here. He's in a moment of crisis. And he began to rebuke him, which is like, yell at him, basically. God forbid, Lord, this must not happen to you. Which is funny, he says, God forbid, which is like, Jesus is like, are you kidding me? God, I am God. Like, but he says, God forbid, Lord, this must not happen to you. But he turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Anybody ever use that? It's a great, like, just, you can say that. Something's, if you're just struggling, you're like, get behind me, Satan. I said that about the water this morning because it didn't fill up really at all. We had, it was wild. Um, but really what it is and why he's saying it is like, look, like, he says, you're setting your mind. It's a stumbling block because you're setting your mind not on God's interest but on man's. Peter is more excited about his future role and what that'll look like and thinking, well, there's absolutely no way that we can win if you die. That's, we follow you, and when you die, then we all die or don't win or whatever, right? There's no way that through suffering can come blessing and this future. And I think about this, this reveals a lot about our own hearts, right? We might intellectually understand who Jesus is, right? And then we start to put him into all areas of our lives. And we're like, oh, this is going to be really hard, or this isn't the way I want it to go. And so what we do is, maybe instead of like setting our mind on our own interests, we find our interests, we create them, and then we just kind of jam Jesus into them so they look good. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's one thing to be like, I'm going to go spend all my money on terrible things, right? But it's another thing to be like, I really want all these things. So I'm going to buy things that I really, really want, but then I can like justify. Like, well, like Jesus, like I'm going to use them for Jesus. Like, it's, you know... Like, there's a John Chris skit a long time ago where 
he made fun of this idea where he had a video and he was like, we're, uh, we're feeling really called to be missionaries in Aruba. And, uh, and they were like on a boat with like really fancy like yacht. And you're like, yeah, and we need your money because we need to buy a yacht because we need to administer the people in the yacht club. And you're just like, that's not how that works, you know? Like, yes, those people do need Jesus. Like, they're not wrong about that, but you really, like, have to go to that level. Do you really need to raise $2 million to buy a yacht so that you can meet and reach, like, 10 people, right? Like, did Jesus do that? He's like, hey, like, if I want to go reach this really important person, like, i got to have a bunch of money. Like, otherwise, he's not going to respect me, right? And so what we do is oftentimes, instead of even just, like, setting our mind on our own interests, we set our mind on our interests and try to, like, jam God into it, right? People, when I was a youth pastor, people would do this, students who do this all the time in relationships. Oh, my gosh. It was like, he's so great. And everyone's like, no, he's not. Like, he's a terrible person. Here's, like, X, Y, and Z, right? But the person is just so, like, needs security in a guy, right? And they've had, whether it's maltruist, past life, home life, or whatever, just, like, likes the fun of having a relationship. I don't know. And they just, guns blazing. But they're like, but, like, it's, like, the Lord's in it, you know? And he's, like, calling me to marry this person. And I'm like, I, can you pray with us for a while about this one, you know? <laughs> But, but we do it all the time, right? We do it all the time. And at the end of the day, we can justify anything. What, it, what really matters is what's down in our heart, right? Why did we do this thing? What was the motivation? The second thing that we learn about this passage is that we just hate and run away from sadness, grief, and lamenting. We just, like, can't do it, right? It's not pretty. It doesn't sell. Like, when you watch a commercial, it's always like, how can life be better? How can you get this thing you really want? It's never like, are you just sad? That's okay. You know, that doesn't make any money, right? It doesn't win people over. Imagine if, like, our future president was just, like, sad all the time, right? Nobody wants that. But in the very same way, we are blessed if we mourn. That's what it says, right? Jesus, one of his first things, hey, those are in the kingdom, they mourn. They're acknowledging sadness, brokenness in the world, suffering, right? I think about the movie Inside Out. Have you ever seen that? They have the four emotions that are, like, in this girl's brain. Uh, joy, sadness, fear, and anger, right? I think, was it? Disgust, maybe, or something? Yeah, he's like a red guy. But um, the whole time, it shows the emotion she's having, and you just, like, hate sadness, because she just goes over and touches things and ruins the emotion. And Joy's, like, trying to make everything happy, right? It's like her. She's been the main dominant emotion that that child has felt. And then all of a sudden, there's this moment in the movie where her life's been really, really hard, and she just can't fake it anymore. She can't fake the joy and happiness. And sadness kind of takes over and becomes her primary emotion in that moment. And you're like... Gosh, like, because you, you kind of hate sadness. That's kind of how they set it up. She, like, ruins everything. And then you're like, wait. Actually, no, I think that sadness is the best route for her in this moment. And you realize that there's beauty in sadness. And, I mean, think about this practically. Like, if you, if you got a call, you lost a loved one, and everyone's around you, like, you told them. You're, like, really sad. They're like, hey, let's just go out and party. Let's just go do some fun stuff and forget about it. You're like, you guys suck. Like, you're not good friends at all, right? Why are you not sitting with me in the pain and the hardship, Right? And oftentimes we do that, and we do the same thing with Jesus. Jesus' ministry is full and laced with so much suffering and hardship. And for us to just be like, nah, it doesn't matter. Like, we're just going to live life happy, positive thinking. We won't engage in the sadness and the suffering. We'll become afraid of it, and we will miss out in, in, in being in union with Jesus in so many areas of his life and ministry. Think about it like this. Like, if, if Jesus sat down with coffee with you, and he was telling you about his life, right? And he was, like, telling you all these stories, Probably 70% of them are sad and really hard. And if you were just like, man, forget all that bad stuff. What about those good moments? It would almost feel like dismissive. Like you're not even like, it's not like you care about him. Imagine if you sat down with someone, you told them all the hard parts of your story, and they just brushed right over it like nothing happened. 
No, no, no. To, to truly be in a relationship is also to engage with and, and suffer and mourn with the hardship. In the, in the Bible, you don't realize this, but there's far more verses about death and about mourning and about lamenting than there is about happiness. And back then, if someone died, you'd be at a funeral for like several days. I mean, you'd hire professional criers for your, your service. And here, like, you know, I don't know how many funerals you've been to, but for over two hours, we're like, man, this is like rough, right? A wedding's great. You can go for as long as you want, but funerals were like, this is sad. I don't like this. I, you know, my day was just filled with sadness. I even had to wear black, right? Like, it's, we don't like it. It doesn't, it doesn't make us feel like the world is in control, that we are in control, and Jesus is just dismantling their entire understanding of what it means to follow him and the fruit that will come of it. So Jesus, it's not that he doesn't promise joy, because he does, but he also promises suffering, hardship, and sadness because, because of the world. I mean, the world is combating against Jesus' kingdom and their own kingdom, and their kingdom will always be at odds with Jesus. You can't put both together, and that's what we try and do when we try and jam Jesus into our own interests. And so Jesus says this profound statement, probably one of the most foundational statements that we use when we follow Jesus. It's the baseline of what it means to follow him. He says to his disciples, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what does it benefit a person if he gains the entire world but forfeits his life? Or what can a person give in exchange for his life? Jesus is saying, hey, following me actually means self-denial. That's like the, be- the base foundation. And it doesn't mean there's good, it doesn't mean there's joy in it, but in this passage, I mean, they don't necessarily know that Jesus is going to be crucified. He's telling them that. They're not really believing it, right? But a lot of these guys were crucified. I mean, almost all of them were martyred for the faith. Some of them were crucified, even upside down, right? Like, so they literally bore a cross. For us, our cross is like, someone in the Starbucks line is mad at us because we're a Christian, right? I mean, that's... I remember when we moved here and I was like praying over our neighborhood and going on prayer walks and like so excited and just praying for the spirit to like, you know, move in people's hearts. And the area is a relatively hard gospel area. And I, I, I thought for this, uh, for Holy Week, this is the first week we were here, I was like, I'm going to put up Stations of the Cross, which is like a, it's like a cool walkthrough of the, the story of Jesus' death. Um, and it goes through each kind of scripture component. You pray at each of them. So I made these like, uh, these like laminated stations and I was like, I'm just going to put them up in our little park in our neighborhood. And so I went out on like a Wednesday or Thursday night for the Holy Week, and uh, I put them out and I like staked them all in. I come back like seven in the morning, they're all gone, and and I'm like, yeah, that's a bummer, you know. And then like I go on like next door, which is you already know how this is gonna go, and I'm like, hey, you know what happened? I put out the stations of the cross, and the guy's like, oh yeah, I don't think it's appropriate that they're there, like it's really just whatever. And I had the cops take them down, and. And in that moment, I'm like, this is persecution, you know? <laughs> but I'm like, I mean, I was like bummed, you know? I spent like four hours making those things. And, and, and it's so funny because like we laugh, I laugh about it now. But I'm like, that's probably the worst like legitimate persecution that I've experienced in a very long time in this area. Like no one is like throwing rocks through my window in my house, right? No one is endangering my kids. No one is... People, sure, they might be mad and have a mean tone. We try to hand them out free coffee, which does happen. But, like, that, that's the end of it. Like, and, and in some ways, I'm just like, I, who am I? Like, that, that rattled me. And here people are, like, literally knowing that when they come out of that water, like, they're going to be killed, right? And in some ways, I don't know about you, it just makes me cynical. Because I'm like, the Western church gets mad about the, how comfortable the seats are that they sit in for an hour. Or if the service goes over an hour... 
And other people in other countries are dying for owning a certain book, right? The Bible that we have 30 of in our basement. And I think that for us to even like have a lens for this, we have to really absorb the story and the suffering of Jesus on his terms. Because we just think about like Jesus won and he was conquered and he, he, did, he did win, right? He defeated death. But like if we aren't willing to engage in his whole story, we're missing a huge component of him. And he's saying that if you really follow me, suffering is synonymous with it. In fact, he's basically saying that um, if you're not willing to suffer and be rejected like me, then you have no part with me. And I mean, think about it, because the opposite is you deny him, which is what Peter does the night he's going to be killed three times to a little girl. He's like, no, no, I don't know. And they're like, your accent's rough, man. It's definitely you. And he's like, no, 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 I swear it's not me. And then the roaster crows, and he, uh, the rooster crows, and he's like, oh, man, I can't believe I did it. Four hours later, Jesus told me I was going to do this, right? We are so prone to just, like, be terrified of the implications of what it means to follow Jesus because we don't remember that part of following Jesus is suffering and that in suffering, it's actually a good thing. It's not like, man, I'm like, people are being so mean to me and throwing rocks at me. Like, this is so great. Like, praise God, right? Like, no one is just, like, pumped for that. But we know that if we are able to understand that what we are signing up for means all of that, we're far more able to be present and understand the sufferings of Jesus in a deeper level because of that. And that's really what it's about. So when we talk about bearing our own cross, Jesus says, you know, lose your life, basically. And he's not saying, like, be suicidal or, like, don't own a house, right? Like, what he's saying is place everything under me and from that. Start to make decisions. Start, don't make decisions on comfort. Don't make decisions on just safety. Make decisions of is it following me well. There's suffering, shame, and rejection to be followed. And I think about this in my own life, and like I said, that was an experience with the signs that was just comedic. I mean, I never got my signs back, but it's okay. Um, and, but it, it reminds me that this is, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And if I'm already scared of that small thing or like mad about that thing or feeling just depressed, right, because I made these signs, how much farther am I just rejecting the pursuit of more suffering? And, and how, how much more afraid am I of sharing my faith or being present with people around me or like poking in the awkward sometimes, hey, can I, can I pray for you? you know? And they might say no. Oh my gosh, right? How dare they say no, right? So embarrassing. And that's why a lot of people even today like, you know, back then you get baptized, you're like, they like could kill you like right after, right? They're like, well, you said Jesus Lord, not Caesar, you're dead, right? It didn't happen all the time, but it happened. Here, we're, today, we're just like, man, I got to stand in front of all these people and get wet. This is weird. You know, that's like the crux of being baptized. And in some ways, sure, that, yeah, that, I wouldn't, I mean, I did it in khakis when I was 10. So I was spared the, um, the, the worry of that. But you like get in that and you're like, this is weird. This is uncomfortable. This is difficult. And I'm like, this is just the start of the reality of what you are willing to enter yourself into. The good news is, I don't know if it's good news, but we're Americans. We're not going to get, we're typically not going to be martyred for our faith. But we will experience a, a continual life that's different to the, con, to the, to the, wor the world's life, right? Like to the, to the American life. But what if in the midst of all of that, instead of seeing and being afraid of and like being anxious about what potential suffering could be that we not necessarily welcomed it like it comes to us, but we are far more open-handed about the reality of it. It would change our decisions. It would change the way things are. And the reason why we do that is not because we just love suffering. Like I said, it's not like we just get excited about it, but because we know there's blessing from suffering. Let me read to you. This is, um, this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He talks a whole chapter about this. He says... The first Christ suffering we must engage with is the call that summons us away from all of our attachments to the world. 
It's the death of the old self, an encounter with Jesus. Those who enter into discipleship following him enter into his death. They have to remove things from their life. A lot of times we like are partially doing that, right? We're like, well, I want to follow Jesus, but I still want to look at a bunch of porn, right? Or I want to follow Jesus, but I still want to keep drinking even though I can't control myself and I'm an alcoholic and I don't want to say that, right? Or I will continue to follow Jesus and I'll give money away when people see it, right? But I'm still helping for some sort of benefit, right? I mean, if you give to our church, it's tax deductible. So you're already getting benefit. But the, it's, I laugh, but that's our world, right? We're like, well, if I'm going to give, like, like am I going to get my name on a brick? Like, are people going to know how much I gave? This is cool, right? Like, we, we always have an agenda. We're terrible people. We are. And, and to just give anonymously is like a thing of the past. But, but all of these things, right, we're still, are we, are we, are we slightly detaching from the things? Because if we're just only removing part of it, like, well, uh, I'm just going to turn myself so that when people see me, I'm not detaching completely, but from the areas they can see I am, right? I'm going to appear to be a better husband in public, but I'm still going to be verbally abusive when we're one-on-one because no one can see me and I don't want to give up the power because I have insecurities, right? Or, like I said, I'm going to show myself by giving money in certain ways or buying people's dinner, but I'm not going to give in ways that it would be anonymous or there would be anonymity or give to the church or missionaries or whatever, right? Like, we still choose these things. And, and Bonhoeffer's like, no, no. You, the first thing you do is you evaluate everything in lens of what am I attached to and what needs to be laid at the feet of Jesus. And then from that, we engage with what he just calls like the walk of Jesus and the suffering that happens because of that. So I want to just go through real quick. This is what Jesus is suffering. This is what his ministry looked like. And these are all the sufferings he went through, the types, and then what occurred because of it. Jesus became physically and socially poor. Right? He was never wealthy, no possessions. He was not, he was not wealthy in social allegiances either. Right? Like, He'd be like going to like a vote rally and be like, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican. And they're like, we hate you both, right? He was not affiliated. Like, he would not play the game with, the, with Romans. He would not play the game with the religious leaders, right? He wouldn't even play the game with the poor people because the poor people wanted to usurp power and overthrow all the... And he's like, no, I'm not that either. So he had no, like, so, social camp. Even disciples, we know, they were, they were just, like, so unloyal and didn't really know him very well. He was willing to lay down any sort of status, influence. So suffering, him being willing to suffer, gave him poverty, made him poor, he suffered emotionally by the sin, devastation of the world, and enmeshment with sin. He, his cousin got murdered and beheaded. His good friend Lazarus, he had to witness dying and people not having faith and him mourning over that, over the, the idols of the world, mourning over how God's holy temple had become desecrated by money and wealth and corruption. He mourns over the destruction and evil of just the world in general. Suffering gave him a reason to mourn. He suffered an immense level of pride, because he didn't become a military power-hungry king with weapons, right? Like, he was, he, in his first part of ministry in Matthew 4, he wards off the devil's temptations of pride, right? Of, you can make bread for yourself and make a name. You can have all this area. You can have the world. I'll give it to you, right? Whatever you want. And Jesus enters into suffering instead of taking the easy way out, the pride, and, and, and not, and refusing God. And so the suffering of all of that, of not becoming a power-hungry king, made him humble and meek. Suffering enabled meekness in him. I don't know about you, meekness is not a typical adjective that men want to be known as, let alone women, but meekness is who, what suffering made Jesus into. Jesus suffered also by renouncing his apparent righteousness, meaning that he was righteous, he was without sin, but he would go hang out with people who weren't, which would label him as unrighteous. He was willing to, to enter into places where people would talk about him and slander him and gossip him, right, because of just who he was hanging out with. And so he, he gave up even his own um, righteousness 
And so the suffering made him hunger and thirst for righteousness for, for the people around him, for the world. He suffered in regards to his very own dignity. I think dignity is like baseline. There's pride and dignity is like we're human. We have some bit of worth, some shred of worth. And Jesus gave basically all of that up by not only hanging out with people who had no dignity, downtrodden, sick, broken, but he also had the most radical act of mercy in that by being put on the cross and embarrassed and just like falsely accused. I mean, there's zero dignity in being crucified naked on a cross in front of everyone. Zero. And he did that. Uh, and so suffering gave him the ability to be merciful to people, to the broken around him and to the world as he went through the crucifixion. He also, suffering also occurred as he tried to remain pure in heart, right? Like he had to suffer because he was pure in heart, which meant he made decisions that the world did not like. He submitted his heart over to the Father, didn't let Peter even be like, it's not going to happen, right? Or their, take their opinions. He, he suffered because of his pure heart. One of my favorite ones is he suffered violence, like physical violence by the Romans, but he was a man of peace. Peace brought suffering because I mean, whenever they, uh, they ridiculed him on the cross, they say, just come down and retaliate, right? Like, you can do it. And he totally could have come down there and slapped that guy right in the face. We would have loved to read that. That would have been the best thing ever. Yes. yes. That's right. But he didn't. And if you remember in one of the Gospels before that, they come to rescue, they come to, with pitchforks and like a couple torches, classic angry mob, right? And they're like, we're going to arrest you. And, and, and Peter tries to like fight him back or whatever. And then Jesus is like, you realize like, I could call down 72,000 angels like that if I wanted, right? And Peter's like, oh, you know. And, 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 and just like I said, he's just a man of peace. And peace causes suffering. But suffering is, is inevitable. The last one is he suffers because of righteousness' sake. He had to die so that people might be made right. He, he flipped tables with money changers. He rebuked leaders for their external facades. He pushed people who just wanted healing into spiritual righteousness and healing. And he suffered because of his priority of that. Now, at this point, if you've been tracking with us for the last 52 weeks, good for you. Um, and you, can, you can actually tell what I'm doing right here. All of these are the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you take your Bible... You go back to Matthew 5, which is like 8 to 10 pages back to the left. Jesus gives his first sermon to a bunch of group of people about what the kingdom looks like. And he says, here are the people who get to be a part of this kingdom. Because that's what blessed means, like blessed with God, God with you. God with you are the poor in spirit. God with you are those who mourn. God with you are the meek. God with you are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God with you for those who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers, and who are persecuted for righteousness. And then the last one, which is, has caused scholars a lot of difficulty, because it's just a little bit different than all the other ones, is blessed are you, the disciples, people who follow him, when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of things on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, because your reward is in heaven. The cross and the life of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus embodied all of those things in his ministry and even just on the cross. That he, he knew that the reality of all of these blessings will only come through suffering. And so if Jesus' sacrifice is one of suffering so that we might be blessed, we are called to live the exact same way. Think about in the cross, the moment of the cross, right? Like the cross is the greatest moment of suffering for Jesus, his entire ministry, it's loneliness, it's physical torture, it's digni like not dignifying, it's, it's all this, right? Feeling forsaken by God the Father. That's the level of the, the, the difficulty. 
So the cross is Jesus' greatest moment of suffering, while at the exact same time, it is the greatest moment of blessing. At the exact same time. The utmost suffering provides the utmost blessing for everyone, for the world. And so what Jesus is saying is, I did that. Now you grab your cross and you do the exact same thing. And so you willingly engage in suffering, whether you lose your dignity, whether you're poor, whether you have to just sit by someone who's crying and you're not even understanding why they're crying, whether you have to just be humble and be meek and just take the shots that come at you, right? Take the false accusations like I did by three different groups of people before I was killed, like went to three different houses and, and everybody said false things, or the, the, or, the, or the violence, right? We don't, like I said, we're not necessarily worried about physical violence, but all of those things, take them all, and what will happen is that level of suffering will become a blessing for the world, for the people around you. And you know that to be true. Think about that. We, we talked about how Sarah and I, like, people have just given us checks in the mail when we, like, we're struggling, right? And they're like, here's $1,000, and we're like, what the heck? This is crazy, right? They're suffering, which this is monetary, but their, their generosity and probably suffering monetarily blessed us, right? Or someone's time. Someone comes over to my house and helps me with a project, and they're, like, pulling down insulation, and there's no reason why they should be there helping me. I should just not be cheap and pay someone to do it, right? And their lungs are literally suffering for the sake of relationship, right? And just loving one another. I'm giving you silly mundane answers, but at the end of the day, we all know that when people suffer for us, it's some of the most beautiful things to see because we know there's blessing in it. And if you think about a community like us, who is, is every person in here is willing to suffer for the blessing of others, what that would do in the world. What would it do on Sunday mornings if someone new walks in and everybody's like, I got my group, right? I'm talking to my people. I want to talk to you, right? What if I was willing to suffer the potential social awkwardness of saying something dumb? You should try me. I'm up here for 35 minutes. I mean, the amount of dumb things I say. They have a, they have a folder of dumb things I've said over the last year. I'm sure that'll be a great, I don't know, who knows when that'll come out, but <laughs> suffering for the sake of blessing. What is the suffering in your life that you are afraid of or you're hiding from or you are shirking and, and the Lord is letting you know, I know he is, that you're not willing to engage with so that at the same time blessing might come. And this, isn't, this doesn't just mean blessing like, oh, if I give money away, I get more money. It's not how it works. Jesus, is, Jesus gave his whole body up. It's not like, I mean, he knew, like, I'm going into this getting nothing out of this except relationship with people and I'm willing to do it. And so this passage at the end of the day, uh, I want to invite uh, Nick up as we, as we close is, just, is really just us owning the reality that following Jesus is inevitable with suffering. And if you're not suffering, you're probably not following Jesus. And I say that because the two worlds don't, they don't fit together. Um, you could be suffering because you're, you're in both, right? And you're living a life of like hypocrisy, right? You come to church, but you do this on Saturday night. Or you come to church, but you're doing inappropriate things with people. Or you come to church, but you're, you're embezzling, or you're greedy, or you're hiding money, or whatever, right? You name it, you know it. But at the end of the day, following Jesus is signing up to bear a cross that, that changes our lives, but for the good. And I, I want to close with this quote Bonhoeffer talks about in his book, because he says this, and it's profound. He says, to endure the cross is not a tragedy. It is suffering, which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. And when it comes, it is not an accident, but a necessity. I love how I use the word fruit. Like, fruit is always this positive thing. Like, what are the fruits in your life, right? Like, what are, are you being generous? How are people seeing you? And he's like, no, no, suffering is a fruit. If we thought about that, like, what if our church was marked by suffering instead of 
how much money we raise, how big we are, how great our worship is, how awesome my teaching is, how cool our space is, right? Like, what if it was like, man, those people have experienced some insane hardships and they rally around other people like no one I've ever seen. That is the beauty and the fruit of suffering. And it's not an accident. It's not like, oh my gosh, my tire's flat. I've got to bear my cross and change this tire, you know? Everybody gets flat tires, right? But it's exclusively, when I follow Jesus, I am signing up for suffering that will contradict with the world and its tension. And so as we close, I just, I want us to just let that ruminate. The cross means sharing the suffering of Christ to the last and to the fullest. So some of you, um, I hope you don't feel duped as you follow Jesus and been like, this is really depressing, Trey. I don't know if I like this. I'd rather just be comfortable. But I, I, I care too much about you to not tell you the truth. And... Um, as we transition into communion or the bread and cup, this is a reminder, this is why we do it every Sunday, is that we remind ourselves that, that Jesus' suffering had to be done so that we might receive blessing, which is God with us, which is God in relationship with us. And so we're going to have some time uh, to partake in that. We also have people in the back who'd love to pray for you. Um, I will also be in the back if you're like, man, I want to get baptized today. We have swimsuits and towels. We'll do it. The water, even Megan said the water's not even cold. So we were going to do it outside, and then we moved inside. So if you want to get baptized, you want to follow Jesus, let's do it. I'll be in the back. We can talk about it. Otherwise, you can take this time to take the Lord's Supper. You can pray. We have people in the back who would love to pray for you. You can pray with whoever you want on the sides. We'll give it a couple minutes, and then we'll close with one last song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.